to another episode of Public Problems. Again today, I am with a few Bush School students, and we're going to be discussing uh, an interesting report that they have pulled together as part of their research this semester. But before we go in that direction, you'll hear from at least four other voices, and I'd like you to be able to put a, a name with those voices. So if you would, team, just uh, introduce yourselves. That would be great. All right. I'm Madison. I'm Lindsay Schwartz. I'm Will Hill. I'm Jim Wonderful. So thanks again, team, for um, the work you've done on this project. And also uh, thank you for allowing me to record this conversation and share it. Uh, I'm really excited to uh, share this uh, particular report on education uh, with, the, with the podcast listeners. So thank you for that. Um, before we jump into the details of your report, I was wondering if uh, you might share why you picked this topic, inequality in education. You were able to pick any topic that you like, and you focused on this one. So why is that? Well, we decided to focus on the topic of inequality in education. One, because pretty much everyone, actually everyone in this group is in school, first of all. And we obviously are going for degrees that are of a higher level than just um, even a standard bachelor's degree. So we've obviously um, had to go through either public school systems or school in general. So we felt that we had been personally affected by this issue in one shape or another, whether we knew it or not. So that's kind of why we chose this issue. Yeah, and um, we also, in our previous project, it was kind of like a, an offhanded conversation that we all had about uh, education, so it was kind of like a, a no-brainer as to what our next project was going to be. So it, it kind of just naturally presented itself. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's dive right in. Um, you lay out the problem of inequality in education and hit on a few things as to why it is a problem. But before we get there, I, I think that will be mostly clear to the audience of why having unequal education is maybe not good for society. But let's circle back around to that and start with, I think you do a really nice job uh, in your report of laying out all of the kind of historical reasons why there is inequality in education. So I want to make sure we have plenty of time to hit on those. So let's start with those. You list a number of things ranging from socioeconomic status to the summer learning gap, neighborhood effects, the school to prison pipeline. So why don't we just dive right into those issues that you highlight that uh, provide historical context as to why this is a, is a problem. Okay, so um, the first kind of reason that we've identified as to why this gap exists is um, for early intervention. So it has shown that children of lower socioeconomic status do not receive the um, engagements with their parents as much as um, people of higher socioeconomic status. So in that engagement, they tend to you know, talk with them more, play with them more, and with that becomes higher levels of vocabulary and, and therefore increased literacy when they do start learning how to read. So before children even enter kindergarten, there's already a gap between children who are afforded the privilege of having supplemental um, ways of getting this vocabulary. So this one's before children even enter the school system, they come in with earlier interventions, as you call it, but earlier exposures to education in their household. So that's kind of the first one. Yes. All right. And then um, one of the greatest indicators that we've actually identified, which kind of permeates to every other um, 
reason why this problem exists is socioeconomic status. So with that, it's very hard to kind of like skip um, classes, like socioeconomic classes. So being in a lower socioeconomic status kind of determines which school you go to based on the neighborhood you live in and parents who do have a higher income are able to spend more money and invest in their child's education, whether it be through preschool or sending their child to private or higher funded high schools, as well as being able to um, provide supplemental education such as tutoring and um, when you, whenever you look at getting into colleges, they can provide more um, SAT prep, ACT prep, and um, other things like that, as well as um, environmental factors of being in a low socioeconomic household do impact the children because when you are from a lower socioeconomic status, there tends to be more tension within the home relating to issues being as to being provided like base level needs. So with that tension, it leads to a lesser ability to focus in school during other environmental struggles. Yeah, I think you do a really nice job highlighting this with the, which the listeners can't see this, but the the chart you or figure you provide from the Century Foundation, I think is pretty striking. And just to kind of give the listeners a, a, a picture of it in their mind, you have um, five, uh, six different types of colleges, community college, less than non-competitive, competitive, very competitive, highly competitive, and most competitive as six uh, different uh, types of colleges. And it's, it's pretty striking uh, just to, to to highlight it to the extremes for people. The bottom SES quartile, 28% uh, attend community college, whereas 5% uh, attend the most competitive. And then if you look at the top SES quartile, only 16% um, are in community colleges and 70% in the most competitive. So there's a really stark difference in the types of colleges that people attend based on their SES which I think really highlights this point that you're making. All right, what else? So then we have the summer learning gap, and that kind of goes back to learning outside of the classroom. So with that, children who come from a higher level of income, their parents get to, again, fund more outside of the classroom, whether it be through summer camp or, you know, other ways of learning. Because I know I volunteer at a child um, children's museum kind of supplemental learning thing and so those children who are from a lower socioeconomic status whose parents are working are focusing on providing the minimal basic needs do not have access to the same resources as parents of a higher socioeconomic status all right and then our next one we talked about is neighborhood effects. Mm -hmm. So children of poor neighborhoods are less likely to come out of climb out of poverty than children who grow up in affluent neighborhoods. So this kind of goes back to, um, of course, the, everything kind of comes back to the socioeconomic status, but this is uh, very prevalent whenever you see people picking houses based on which schools are going to be zoned for. So people who can afford to live in these richer communities pick schools based on, you know, or pick their house based on what school they can go to, while people who can't afford to have the option of picking and choosing where they can afford to live tend to end up in schools where are lower funded. Yeah, and so, and then the thing with the neighborhood effects uh, as well is that people of similar SES or socioeconomic status tend to cluster together, right? And so your neighborhood 
really is predictive of the type of education that you're going to get and the, the affluence of those around you. All right. And then next we have the achievement gap and the achievement gap kind of explains the differences in standardized test scores, whether that be on a primary school level, such as like tax test or star test, or it being the SAT or ACT. And there have been studies, studies shown that students of color, mostly black and Latino students do worse than white students on the same test. And this kind of discrepancy can have long-term effects on those students of color as determining which colleges and universities they can attend and whether they can move on to the next grade level. So whenever you look at star or tax tests, a lot of them, if you pass or don't pass, the exam determines whether you get to move on to the next grade level. So if the test is made so white students do better and students of color do worse, then that can affect the child. Okay. And then we have the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. And this kind of is just kind of explaining the way of public schools essentially pushing children into the criminal justice system. And this um, is kind of seen in connection with zero tolerance policies using law enforcement to address behavioral issues. So it's shown that these policies disproportionately affect students of color and especially white or african-american males and it's been recognized as a push out phenomenon where these punitive measures such as suspension and expulsion often push students to dropping out of school which is a major predictor of incarceration yeah this is one too that uh uh last season of the podcast and some other students did a whole uh project on the school to prison pipeline and it it very much does seem to be the case that it disproportionately affects uh, particularly black men and that there is this kind of pushing out mechanism for a variety of reasons that seems to be at play. So that, that's one that I think is, is also uh, very well documented. Yes. So, and then finally we have the discipline gap and the discipline gap kind of goes hand in hand with the school to prison pipeline in which the discipline gap, um, disproportionately affects minority communities in which they try and they attempt to have an equal playing field of punishment but although it kind of isn't an equal playing field in a sense i know for example there was one article i read where a honor student um got sent to prison for truancy because the student had to work i think it was two jobs to support their household so it's kind of the disproportionate, um, I guess, discipline as opposed to like what's really going on. So they're getting punished too harshly for the actual crime or infraction. So it seems like from these, uh, what looks like about seven issues that you highlight, this is really a story about resources uh, and race, right? This is really in large part a story about socioeconomic status, which is a function of resources, and uh, which also overlaps with race uh, on average. On average, uh, blacks and Hispanics have lower SES than whites. But even within that, uh, particularly within, this, I guess, the school-to-prison pipeline, the discipline gap, uh, the neighborhood effects, and the achievement gap, they're also very, very much colored by by race. I mean, is that really your understanding of the history of the history of the inequality here? 
Yes, so I think if you took all of the issues that we've outlined, they can be described within those two um, two categories of being race and um, resources being the socioeconomic status. So before we move into why this is uh, a persistent problem, why is it a problem to begin with? I mean, to, to you and to me, maybe this is pretty self-evident, uh, maybe not, um, but for someone who's listening who might say, yeah, of course, there's inequality in education, There's uh, that's part of uh, the way resources work, why should we care that there is an inequality in education across some of these dimensions? Why is it important? Well, um, to start, uh, we talked about that first little bit was mm -hmm. about uh, vocabulary and language. So if you think of that on a grand scale, if you have a disparity in language and like comprehension of what those words mean and you get a difference in what they mean, then you end up having a culture that is speaking the same language, but you're having different meanings. Mm -hmm. And whenever you have that, it kind of creates a, uh, a, a bigger rift than already was existing. That's makes it even harder than just like a, uh, than, than just money. It's mm -hmm. more than that. And so, uh, education is really the giving everyone the ability to move from one class to the other. And that's kind of the foundation of how we work as a country and being able to have that, that American dream mentality, and if you if you throw that out the window, that's like that's like the one great thing that we we actually uh, talk about in our yeah. country. So yeah, I think it really speaks to, to to your point, Will. This the American ethos of that we that we kind of aspire to or believe in, I suppose, as a good equality of opportunity, and education is the base base thing that helps provide opportunity throughout your life. I mean, to your point, if people start with uh, more limited vocabulary, limited uh, mathematical skills, uh, limited opportunity to learn other skills, we know that education is a, is a decent uh, contributor to people's life outcomes. And so if we don't have a equality in education, at least with on some, some level of variance, but if it's really extreme, it really can't be true then that we have equality of opportunity in this country. Um, and so the degree to which there are gaps in the equality of education really hammers away at this whole idea of the American dream and being able to, to kind of move up in, uh, uh, in ability to have a good life and an ability to accumulate resources and ability to, you know, do the things that you want and pursue those things. And so I think, in particular in the U.S. when we say we believe in equality of opportunity, we can't make the argument that we have equality of opportunity if we don't have some sort of equality of educational opportunities. So why, um, I think this is a pretty, um, sort of with the school to prison pipeline and a few other of these, this is really in contradiction to the American dream and the way we view ourselves as a society. So why is this allowed to per persist? Why does this problem continue to persist even when we all kind of are on board with the importance of the equality of opportunity? I think, I think partially we don't know where to begin. Um, you know, it's how, how do you give the parents of the children, you know, a leg up into being able to provide, um, in my, in the section of the, the paper that I wrote or the part of the paper that I wrote was, um, there's a stigma 
and I think that's part of the issue. There's a stigma around um, parents that are not involved, and um, that's just because it's a single. You know, if you're coming from a single a single parent um, household, they can't be involved the way somebody else. You know, with a two parent household. Um, with a higher income can be able to be involved in the school or, you know, like Madison talked about, you know, just starting them out at a higher literacy level or just kind of getting a heads up or a leg up before um, they even begin school in the first place. Yeah. So there's certainly the piece of uh, sort of uh, like generational uh, inequality in the sense that parents that didn't receive a good education then aren't able to overcome some of these uh, these things that we mentioned, right? There, It's hard to overcome early intervention if you weren't given early intervention. It's hard to uh, it, go up in the socioeconomic status if, if that wasn't an opportunity for you. And if you live in a neighborhood where education um, is unequal and you don't have the same type of resources, so I think, you know, part of this really is cyclic, uh, cyclical in that way that once you're in this cycle of poor educational opportunities, that it's really hard to pull yourself out of that because it's there's the neighborhood effects, there's the socioeconomic status effects, there are all these things that are working to, um, to reinforce this. Yeah, there, there's another thing we also talked about too, um, the teacher turnover rate being really high, especially within the, you know, first year of teaching, they call it kind of the crucial year because, um, that's kind of where teachers know or know either make it or break it. Um, and if you are entering a school that, um, has kids of a lower SES, um, there's less resources, there's less, um, opportunities and there's, there's not really, um, time for mentorship for these young teachers that, have a heart for what they do. They want to be successful in it, but it's, um, you know, if you, if you don't get any feedback on how you're doing or how you could improve or even somebody to say, Hey, I understand it's, it's frustrating. Um, they're going to be less likely to continue, continue the, the career path of being a teacher. Yeah. And I think another piece that's related to that, uh, and in some ways a, a direct function of it is, uh, what another group talked about, um, uh, Earlier in uh, earlier in the season, which is that the way in which we fund education is also unequal, and so because uh, education is often funded in large part at the local level, and um, that just also reinforces these low socioeconomic status, these low uh, the neighborhood effects, because we actually uh, fund education essentially at the neighborhood level or at the very local level. And so that also, I think, really plays a role in uh, in causing this problem to persist because these neighborhoods and these communities need more than the, the, more than the share of resources to overcome things like early intervention challenges, um, summer learning gaps, um, and uh, some of these issues... Uh, because it becomes more costly per student to get them to the same level. And then perversely, yeah. while that's true, these are also the communities without the resources to provide quality education. Yeah, and that, that brings us right back to the cyclical part of it that you were saying. You know, if, if there's a single-parent 
household or if they're at a lower SES where they can't provide, not that they're not trying, but they, they just can't provide, you know, something as simple as breakfast in the morning for the child, then they're already starting out as, at a deficit, um, possibly even, you know, developmentally in a, in a cognitive sense. And then that's put on the teachers and the teachers don't have any support like we were talking about. And then the teachers leave and then we're right back to square one. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's the cycle really yeah. that obviously and very clearly needs to be broken. Yeah. So before we jump into some of your solutions, you do a nice job of laying out some of the, the stakeholders. And in particular, you talk about stakeholder participation in affirmative action within education. So what do you what, uh, explain to the listeners what you mean by that? Uh, okay, I think uh, in these issues we have first sta- stakeholders. The first one is the students because the students face these issues directly. Uh, for example, the black and poor students are influenced by uh, discrimination at a higher rate. So, uh, affirmative. Affirmative action is an important way to protect students' rights. Secondly, uh, school, because they will impact discrimination directly and uh, like they will avoid to uh, access to class and make some uh, different grade bias of the admission and so on. So uh, these actions can ask stu- uh, schools to put more efforts like developing feedback systems. Secondly, uh, the government. Government is responsible for building a good education environment. Uh, by government spending, politics and laws and regulations. For example, the Age Discrimination Act at, uh, of 1975. Finally, is the nonprofit organizations. Organizations can fill the gap between the service of the schools and the government. Uh, for example, American Association for uh, it, it will pro- promotes understanding and advocacy of the these actions. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it, uh, you, do, you do a nice job there laying out students are affected by this and have a role in it. Schools are one of the major organization units that are participating in this. You have the role of nonprofit and kind of advocacy groups that are helping provide some additional resources to the students. And then uh, government, as it sets policy uh, for the schools, um, also play a role in this. So I think those are really uh, good for stakeholders. Uh, the fifth I would maybe add to that, uh, which is kind of implied in your discussion of this, but is just society broadly, right? We all suffer from a society in which education levels are low or unequal based on based on neighborhoods or based on income or based on race or gender. These things are just not good for the flourishing of all members in society, which is something I think we should care about. So how do we get better at that? How do we address this kind of systematic inequality in education? What kind of solutions did your group come up with? So, well, uh, first off, we looked a little bit more on how to best uh, like help the, commu- the schools that are struggling and this going like beyond beyond just looking at labeling race as the, the issue and just identifying that, how would that, what would that look like? 
Mm-hmm. And so we figured that uh, with such a high turnover rate in these low SEC uh, schools and these low performing schools, that perhaps the the biggest issue for the, the teachers that are going into these schools is not really having a very good uh, working vocabulary that matches with the, uh, the students that are in those. So if those those teachers aren't able to communicate with their students, then you'd have immense amounts of uh, frustration and, and uh, a lot of the things that we reviewed kind of suggested that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what one thing that the state or federal governments could do um, that's already been, they're already doing this in the nonprofit sector and, and really like facilitating and mentoring students. But if they had a, uh, like a grant or a recruitment program that focused on getting graduates and former students from their community that are going into the teaching field to be able to go back in. So that could look at, that could be all sorts of things from just having a, uh, uh, a grant for a recruitment program that's geared towards that or having funding or su- supplemental funding that's included if you have a teacher that's from the area. And it, even if that student decides to leave, um, if they're going from their own community and they're getting that mentorship in that, they're more likely to stay in the in the teaching career, in the teaching field, which is the overall goal. The more teachers we have, the better we're off. Um, the next thing would be so with this prison pipeline uh, or school to prison pipeline and all of these disparities in discipline, we kind of figured that maybe having a one-size-fits-all approach to these schools that are having their own like hard and tough issues should be put to a more uh, strategic approach. So having like a, a task force or just a specific group that's over tackling these hard to fix issues may allow for them to have a step back and look at the different communities that are dealing with these so they can find unique approaches to improving the like the outcomes in those communities whether it's um, changing what kind of discipline is going on or changing what kind of incentive or just regularly training and like being a uh, like being there to support the the administration in those schools in tackling those things, so they're not down like loaded down. Yeah, I uh, I like both of these first two. Uh, if it's all right, I, if I interrupt you for just a moment. And the thing I really like about the uh, community teacher recruitment programs is, uh, you know, we have uh, Teach for America, which I think does a lot of good uh, at getting uh, high quality, uh, top tier teachers uh, very well trained to go into some of these low SES uh, communities and some of these uh, neighborhoods that have inequality in education. But one of the real criticisms or, or drawbacks is that they don't stay um, as the first one. And so they don't stay and become lodged in that community. But also to your point, Will, they don't always know how to speak the language of uh, the folks, of the students in that community. So if you bring a you know, an upper class white male into a inner, you know, to be stereotypical about it in an inner city minority uh, dominated school, they may not culturally understand what's going on around them. And that might make them less effective, even if they're high, highly trained. And also the piece that's nice about the community uh, recruitment program is that those people are probably more likely to stay in those schools. Not only will they be more likely to speak that 
that cultural language, but they're more likely to um, to hang around, which speaks to the turnover. And then I like this advisory task force. I've I've become a kind of a a fan of things that look like independent commissions <laughs> that allow people who are experts to think about prob- solving challenges rather than leaving it to the political process. So I like this idea of uh, task forces, uh, you know, at regional or local levels that aren't the one size fits all, but aren't also just leaving it completely up to the local school boards who maybe don't have the intellectual capital or the capacity to fully address this. So I really like those uh, first two solutions, and you were about to give me the third one, so let's hear it. <laughs> so this third one, um, we, I, well, I kind of saw a little bit about this. Uh, they practiced this over in, um, in India, but at a very, very like lower level um, of uh, complexity. But on issues of like comprehension, so we, we talked about things that would help with developing language and communication skills. But whenever we're talking about things that are relating to like the sciences and the maths and everything like that, those are all things that are pretty much like they are, they're all set in stone and they should be very like the basic meat mathematics things. Those things aren't changing. Mm-hmm. So spending a lot of money on having a, uh, a textbook um, renewed every two or three or, or four years in those kind of fields is it's not really uh, it's not not like efficient at all mm-hmm. because you could have a basic baseline book that you're having provided and then having um, well having like a share drive and an interscholastic interscholastic uh, curriculum um, like sharing drive where Teachers can have that feedback loop where they can get feedback from other teachers across the state. They can uh, innovate. They can share different curriculum enhancements and different like um, like different tools and different methods that are working for them, and allow for everyone. Even if there's a, a like a small town, uh, even if you're from a small town like me, you can have all those really great small town teachers that are in there being able to enhance the inner city students uh, like the inner city schools and getting their program just as developed. And so you, you get this uh, bit of continuity and sustainability of your uh, curriculum that's kind of enhanced and it makes it to where you save money on the state level um, by not having to, to pay for as much stuff because you're having uh, teacher driven content and teacher-driven innovation that you previously were having to, to really pay for. And it doesn't eliminate the, the other stuff. Um, you, you would still, it would open more doors for uh, for uh, just continual improvement of what is being provided to challenge and grow students. Yeah, kind of like a place to share best practices and give feedback on what's working in one community and uh uh, different tools that one community has maybe found that might be helpful that another community could try. Um, and I, I think that's uh, particularly useful to your comment on, you know, uh, you know, maths and sciences and things that we have a pretty, uh, it, well, at least with math, these things aren't changing. Two and two is going to continue to be four and the square yes. root of, you know, uh, oh goodness, I'm not going to be, be able to do it. The square root of 64. There we go. I was trying to think of what is one I can do. Um, you know, isn't changing, right? It's still going to be eight. <laughs> um, and so thinking about best practices for teaching these hard sciences or these natural sciences 
um, rather than investing resources and updating textbooks, I think is uh, is certainly worth considering. As you note here, further investigation is needed to to examine how effective these models might be. But I think it's a pretty creative way of thinking about tackling the knowledge gap across different communities. Um, excellent. I like this. I like that you are giving some practical, pragmatic solutions to um, to improving uh, the level of inequality in education. Because I can tell you when I look at the funding picture, it always seems so bleak. <laughs> when you try to think of ways to equalize funding or to get more financial resources into these communities that need it the most, it's never a very pretty picture. And so I like that you found some things that don't require significant amounts of changing the formulas for funding education uh, and instead focus on you know some targeted amounts for these teacher recruitment programs uh, in that way, but also really knowledge sharing and best practices and thinking about ways through either a task force or independent commission or uh, these kind of knowledge sharing tools um, as ways of improving education because I, I think hoping that there'll be more resources towards those schools is, is probably not something that there's a lot of hope for. Is there anything that we haven't yet covered or that you, that you discuss in your conclusion pulling these issues together that would be nice to leave, uh, leave the listeners with that we haven't already touched on? Well, I mean, the biggest thing that we looked at um, whenever we were trying to find these solutions was what can we do that can create value and doesn't require so much investment. So uh, we, we tried to make it to where all these things that we're talking about um, both either make it more, like more efficient in a sense, um, and so they're paying for themselves, but also it wouldn't be something that's scrapped if the economy went down or something like that because we we fi figured that those kind of uh, changes would be longer lasting mm -hmm. very nice well thank you so much group thank you for your time and thank you for all the work on this i i think that uh, i mean i am an educator for a living and so <laughs> i do think that these issues of inequality and in education are at the core of really some of our challenges in society um, when the gaps in education and educational opportunities are so vast, it uh, it really breaks down some of the the basic tenets of a free and open and democratic society. And so, um, thanks again, and uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you.